0: Go ahead and grab a Bible and join me in Hebrews 12. That's where we'll be tonight, Hebrews 12. Trying to... uh... Hebrews 12, we'll start here in verse uh, 18. These are the words of God. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sounds of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from heaven, or excuse me, who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, and now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, it's my prayer this evening, that uh, that you would grant us understanding and proper application of this text. And we know that it's your spirit who teaches us. So I pray that he would do just that. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. So tonight I want to finish out chapter 12 here, and I think we'll have just a couple more weeks left. Uh, I'm toying around with a couple of different ideas for what to preach on after Hebrews is finished, so I certainly welcome any um, input from you, so please don't hesitate to, to talk to me about that, um, and we'll kind of see where, see where we go from there. So anyway, at this point in our study, it should have been made very clear that Hebrews as a whole is a thoroughly eschatological book. When studying eschatology, we tend to jump to places like the book of Revelation, sometimes skipping a book like Hebrews. And you can always tell um, when someone is extra giddy to jump to the book of Revelation because they call it Revelations. (laughs) Now, this obsession is largely due to the fact that we are obsessed about metaphors and hyperbole and we, we obsess about images and numbers and you know calculating all these um, you know the Bible codes and all these other things, but we are also concerned, uh, some more than others, about the future. So you may have noticed uh, the date setters have been added again. This time, seeing the U.S. embassy moving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem as being the beginning of the end, again. <laughs> So, but to reduce eschatology down to the study of last things tends to truncate our efforts at living faithful in the here and now. So yes, eschatology is incredibly important. Proper exegesis of passages like the Olivet Discourse is absolutely crucial. But seeing eschatology as merely something about the future uh, leaves out key texts that help us build the present based upon the past in order to launch us into the future. So in other words, eschatology spans the course of human history. Any eschatology talk that leaves out, for example, Genesis one, is problematic, it's truncated, it leaves it out. Eschatology is all about human history, and each aspect builds on the other so as to give us both understanding of the past and understanding of the future. Now, of course, the other ditch that you can fall into is merely studying eschatology for the satisfaction of our sensibilities, Um, uh, this mere passive fascination without really any real-time effect about how you live and breathe and do business. So more on that later. One of the ways that we get our eschatology in proper order is by making sure that we deal with redemptive history in a responsible way. Really, all of biblical theology and all studies of Scripture requires us to compare Scripture with Scripture, but it's almost more important when studying eschatology to ensure that you are letting Scripture speak for itself. So, for example, the New Testament itself is a commentary on the Old Testament. Um, We've already talked about the fact, for example, that Hebrews has several times already quoted Psalm 110, uh, quoted a handful of times. So what we should know from this is that the New Testament, particularly Hebrews in this example, Hebrews tells us how we should think about Psalm 110. We have to let the inspired authors of Holy Scripture tell us how to read the Old Testament. So, too many other faulty eschatologies like to tell us what the Old Testament means, all without context from the New Testament. So, especially, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, you have to have a background in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you have to have a thorough, thorough understanding of Daniel, so you can't just kind of pull it out. You have to let Revelation tell us what certain things mean. And I'll give you one other example, just as a sidebar. Um, the Olivet Discourse, Luke actually tells us what the the abomination of desolation is. So many people speculate on what that is. Luke says what the desolation is. It's when Jerusalem is surrounded by Roman armies. So we don't have to guess. We just have to read the Bible. (laughs) Now, I say all of this to sort of set up the passage before us. And so let's kind of just work through it. And then I'm going to pull out some things to consider. Now, up until this point, if you recall from last week, the writer gives us another warning, warning to the Hebrews, and thus to us. He says, don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't let a root of bitterness spring up. Uh, don't, In other words, don't be like Esau. Translation, don't turn back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to the temple. That's really the context of why Esau was even brought up. Uh, Esau is not a man that we should aspire to be like, and the the writer is making the connection between going back to the temple, going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the high priest, and all the corruption that it had become. Going back would be unwise; it would be foolish. In fact, you will fall from the grace of God. So don't forsake the assembly; don't walk away from Jesus and His bride. You know, um, be embrace embrace it. So God is our Father we talked about last week. And our Father loves us. And the way that we know that He loves us is because He disciplines us. He trains us. He teaches us in righteousness. He, he will rebuke us. He will reprimand us. He will reprove us. He is our Heavenly Father, after all. Because of this, we must be willing to endure hostility. We must be willing to endure that which the world might throw at us, um, we have to lay aside the sin that entangles us, right? We have to run the race. We have to run with endurance. And all the while, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. So the text says to consider him. Consider him. Why consider Jesus? So that you don't lose heart. We are, after all, Christians. Now, and on what ground can we do all of this? Well, our text gives us the foundation for it. Verse 18 says it right at the outset that we have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a mountain with blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind. We haven't come to this mountain like Israel had done with Moses in Exodus 19. So notice the comparison already. It's going right back to Moses. We haven't come to this mountain. This mountain had a blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard it, text says, Begged that no further word be spoken to them. Verse 19. Now, a sidebar, quite literally, and you can look this up if you want later, but Exodus 20, verse 19 says this Then they, the people of Israel, said to Moses, Here's what they said Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. You want to talk about epistemological self consciousness? (laughs) If God talks, we will die. They were wise for at least one second. So we are told after this in verse 20 that they could not bear the command that was given from God. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. There is this scene in Exodus of God, Moses ascending to the mountain to receive the law. Um, That's very much the suzerain giving the vassals his treaty and so on. And the mountain was just this palpable thing. Uh, And and God says, don't even touch the mountain. If a beast touches it, it it dies. So the conditions of God's holiness, in other words, are, are too much to bear for mere mortal men. So without God's covering over us, the holiness of God obliterates men. So in verse 21, the fear is brought to another level. Even Moses was full of fear and trembling. Even Moses... Our, our leader was full of fear and trembling. The terror on Mount Sinai was, without a doubt, had to have been, without a doubt, the most powerful experiences of God that man has ever had. But for the Hebrews, and for us today, we need to know that we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have not come to Mount Sinai. And that's not, that's not a way to say, oh, well, we don't have to obey the law. You hear arguments like that, too. Well, we're not on Sinai. Well, let the text speak for itself. We do not worship, in Jesus' words, um, on this mountain or that mountain, as he told the woman at the well. Verse 22 says that we have instead come to Mount Zion, not a desert, but the city of the living God, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriad of angels. We have come to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose citizenship is held in the heavenly places. That's verse 23. And, and on top of all of that, we have come to Jesus, verse 24. We have come to Him. He's the mediator of a better covenant. And he's, uh, his blood is better than Abel's blood. Abel's blood cries for justice. Jesus was vindicated in His resurrection. Jesus' blood does not cry out for righteousness like Abel. Why? Because Jesus' blood came back out the other side through death and in resurrection. So all of Hebrews comes crashing together together in this beautiful snapshot of the heavenly reality now. The path of glory has been achieved by Jesus, and what we must do is know that this is a current reality. Don't miss this, because you have people waiting for this to happen. This is a current reality. It's not a future expectation. It is today. Let's keep going in our text continues his exhortation by pulling the major theme from the previous few verses and he kind of pulls them together and he extrapolates on them some more. We are told here in verse 25 um, not to refuse Jesus who is speaking. God spoke in terror to Israel and they didn't escape it. How much less will we escape the voice of Christ if we turn away from him? And, and too many pietistic Christians that this weak impish Jesus right? He, oh, he's the good shepherd. Um, yeah, who can bench press, you know. <laughs> he, this is not a weakling we're talking about. Because I, I, you think back to the Gospel of John and, you know, he says, my, my sheep hear my voice. And we kind of take that to be like this, this subtle, like, oh, this is Jesus. You will come to me. when it ought to be more of a king demanding worship sort of thing. So, in speaking then, God shook the earth, but now Jesus speaks with a promise, which here in verse 26 is the quote from the prophet Haggai, which he says, Yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. What does that even mean? As always, keep reading your Bible. You get the answer. Verse 27 tells us, The yet once more quote from Haggai means the removing of those things which can be shaken. Right, The created order, the things of the Old Covenant, so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, if you're paying attention, you should also say, well, what does that mean? Keep reading. The answer is in verse 28. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It is steadfast and immovable. And Because of that, we are told that we should show gratitude by which then we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we serve God that way? Well, because our God, He was a consuming fire with Israel, and because God is immutable, He does not change. God is a consuming fire. Now, this is a key text to dismantle anyone who thinks that Jesus came in, in a whole different vein. I think of Andy Stanley's recent comments about unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. Don't. Just a word of advice, don't listen to Andy Stanley, for one. But two, this, this, this speaks right against that type of thinking. All of it, in Hebrews, several times it's always been, if this was true then, how much more now? If they can escape, how much less are we going to escape? It's not as though God just sort of, he, he came in the Old Testament, he was grumpy, and then Jesus softened things up. And we have to get that thinking out of our mind completely. <clears throat> God is a consuming fire now. And evangelism isn't you telling people that Jesus loves them. Evangelism is you confronting them with the law and telling them the gospel. You can't uh, you can't put the cart before the horse. Um, so, what are we going to make of a passage like this? Now, I mentioned at the outset of the message the importance of understanding eschatology as this holistic approach to Scripture rather than a mere fascination with the future. And so... You, especially when you get in with the hyper-dispensational crowd, but even the dispensational crowd itself, um, Bible, st- Bible studies tend to be geared towards when's the rapture going to happen. And th- so you've already just taken one section of Scripture, twisted it up, and you've left out the entire context of everything else. We have to have a holistic approach to Scripture, one that builds on each other and it, and it interprets itself. Now... A passage like this is very much applicable to our post-millennial position. And the reason for this is because of what the text actually says. We don't even have to make it up. It actually says what it says. The passage gives us a current look at how things are today. It was true for the Hebrews then. How much more true is it for us now? For Christians in A.D. 60 and Christians in A.D. 2018, This passage tells us that we have received the kingdom. The kingdom cannot be shaken, and that's because all of it is secured by our priest and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not waiting for a kingdom to come. We are living within its confines and jurisdiction right now. So pay close attention now to the structure of the Old Testament because Hebrews as a whole mimics it. But, but it does so, and it centers it on Jesus. So the covenant people, go back, do your Old Testament history here for a second. Um, the covenant people began with Abraham. Um, but all of it came to a head, really, with Moses and Mount Sinai. The priestly people of God, that's who Israel was called to be, they moved into this promised land, right? After they received the law, and God brought brought uh, his ethics to them. He brought um, promises of the future and sanctions for disobedience and so on and so forth. Um, Moses can't take them into the land because he disobeyed. So he has to die in the mountain. Sad story. Joshua, though, takes them into the land confident because Joshua was a post-mill guy. So, uh, so the priestly people of God, they moved into the promised land There were some painful situations, the sin of Achan and other issues, but they got it. As time moved on, they established a monarchy, which wasn't God's original intention, but since he's patient, long-suffering, he let it it go. He made it happen. Um, And after Saul, we have David, and after David, we have Solomon. Solomon builds the temple on Mount Zion. Come back to that. So what, what Hebrews does with those sort of that sketch is flip it on its head and center it on Jesus. Think of, think of it as Mount Sinai 2.0. Um, at the start of Hebrews, we learned about the superiority of Jesus over Moses, over the Levites, over the angels, and over the entire sacrificial economy. Because of Jesus, we are supposed to come into this promised land, which is the world. That was chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. We have to have the better high priest ministry. We need it. That's chapters 5, 6, and 7. We need to know that we are in the new covenant, which is built on better promises and a better sacrifice. And because of that, now we can approach God. That's chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. So, all in all, Hebrews is a post millennial commentary on the Old Testament. Hebrews is a post mill commentary on the Old Testament. It's an assertion of all that has gone before, and it's a reconstitution of the people of God underneath their new federal head, Adam, the new Adam, the second Adam. He's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. That's Jesus Christ. So this letter serves as the final warning towards those who might dare retreat from the truth of Christ and go headlong into apostasy by chasing the temple and her accompanying sacrifices. So, which means that we should see Hebrews as a prequel to the book of Revelation. We should see Hebrews as a prequel to the book of Revelation. It's a warning to the Jewish Christians caught between Christ and a temptation to apostatize, to to not go to the temple, because if you do, it will not be pleasant, which in the book of Revelation, we see the results of what that looks like. Now, the other reason I make the connection to Revelation is because of the language that's used here in this passage. Hebrews tells us that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not here waiting to go. You know, we got our ticket punched and we're, we're going to go to the heavenly Jerusalem someday. It's a done fact. It's, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John saw, and this is chapter 21, verse 2, listen, the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It is fascinating to me that dispensationalists are um super uber obsessed with like the getting out and going, but here in Revelation there's a coming to earth. What John sees is not some sort of, you know, eschatological satellite falling from the sky, right? Something dispensationalists love to obsess about because they don't read their Bibles properly. You know, locusts are actually Apache, Apache helicopters and so on and so forth. Rather, though, this image is the church of Jesus Christ. The bride here is not, the bride isn't just in the city, the bride is the city. So when, when Peter says, you know, you're, you're a royal priesthood, a nation, you, Revelation says, you are a city. So don't miss this. The Church of Jesus Christ, the regenerate saints of God for all of history, is a city, a new Jerusalem. This is a present reality. And the reason that John sees it coming down to earth from heaven is because the origin of the church is what? From heaven. Now, where do you get that? Very simple. John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Your New birth, your regeneration happened because heaven said it should be so. So both Ephesians two nineteen and Philippians three twenty tell us that we are citizens of this heavenly city. Now, what many Christians mistakenly do is think that our citizenship is in since it's in heaven that we are now exiles on earth. So I actually got an email about this from somebody. Uh, just asking, like, wait, because a couple weeks ago we talked about that we're not strangers and exiles, and and here's partly why to sort of an, answer many Christians who mistakenly think they are exiles. They also say that you know any any local church is sort of this outpost here, and you know we're an embassy of the country that's in heaven. So that implies that we are in enemy territory, right? Or or we. That, like Jesus doesn't actually own the earth. The nations don't really belong to him, even though Psalm 2 says otherwise. Uh, and so we're sort of just like this outpost, this the um we're like the we're the barracks that's hunkered down here in Warrington, and we're taking fire, and we just gotta get out of here because our 50 cal ran out of ammo, right? But so <laughs> um all that right, it's very depressing. Uh that assumes, you know, that Jesus didn't actually come to remake the world, uh, and that someday, you know, all our hope is wrapped up in this returning to heaven, our home country, but this is a categorical error. Notice what John said in Revelation 21. The city was coming down, but down to where? The earth, right? Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we mess that up? (laughs) Why? We learn um, from Peter, the church is a theonomic nation of priests. That's what he says. And and whenever people are born again from above, they now inhabit this city, not in heaven, but on earth. So pay pay careful attention to what the writer says here in chapter um, 12, verse 26. Not only is the earth to be shaken, heaven is shaken. He says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. What does that even mean? When Jesus died on the cross, we are told in Scripture that four things happened. One, there was darkness. There was darkness over the land. Two, the curtain was torn in the temple, right, from top to bottom. Three, there was an earthquake. Four, we're also told in Matthew 27, 52, that the dead were raised, which is a very... Interesting thing for another time, in other words, the world literally shook, but this isn't the only time it happened. At the resurrection of Christ, here's what we read in matthew twenty eight and, and don't miss this because a lot of times we we do miss it matthew twenty eight verse one and three, one to three. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave and behold. A severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Not only did the resurrection shake the earth, the death, or the, the resurrection and the death of Christ both literally shook the earth. But what is the shaking of heaven about? Well, Revelation 21 tells us that in order to have a new heavens and new earth, the present earth and the present heaven needs its own change, this sweeping change. Heaven and earth, this created cosmos, must be shaken so that everything that is, everything that is transient, everything that is temporary and secondary, everything built on this fallen creation may fall away. Now, we shouldn't take that to mean that the space-time continuum well there will be an end of time but as far as like the physical earth we shouldn't take that to mean the physical earth is just sort of gonna like blow up and we'll just float in space with Jesus right don't take it to mean that to say it in the language of Hebrews the shadows need to give way to the reality when all of this scaffolding is torn down that's the temple systems the, the, uh, the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, when all that's torn down, this gives way now to Jesus and his resurrection power. And when this happens, the new creation brought by him will take its proper place where? On earth, <laughs> not just heaven. The heaven and earth, though fractured, are coming back together. So the house that Jesus is building, the city of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, will inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Oh, he didn't mean that literally. He did. The meek will inherit the earth and rule with Christ as priests and kings. So, so I take much of what was said here in this passage to be about the death and resurrection of Christ as well as the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which incidentally Joseph, uh, excuse me, Josephus records many types of physical phenomenon surrounding that whole thing too earthquakes and all all these different things so um and i take that also to to this passage to be about this implementation of the new heavens and new earth beginning with christ launching it into the world after AD 70 and continuing to grow as nations are discipled and brought under the authority of christ jesus so don't just think the shaking is like God's going to do away with the periodic table. No, he invented it, he created it, he called it good, and he's going to redeem it. Um, The shaking is the scaffolding of the temple system and all these other things. The shaking is Washington, D.C. not obeying Christ. All, All these other things. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, though. Now, remember, for the Hebrews, they knew that this was a very tumultuous time. Rome was constantly at war, um, financial issues, um, promiscuity all up and down the streets. It was just a bad, it was a bad time. Israel was a hotbed for mutiny and political uh, restlessness. And this letter would have been read just a few short years before the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple. Many of the recipients of this letter would have known about Caligula's attempt at putting um, his own statue in the temple. They would have known about all these historical things that were happening. It was just absolute chaos. So they quite literally were experiencing the upheaval and the shaking. Um, The birth pangs of Romans 8 were something that would have been very palpable for them. Now, as I've made plain thus far, eschatology can't merely be about how the future is going to play out. It's broader than that. Eschatology is uniquely tied to our view of history as well what we need to learn from a passage from this passage is that history itself is a time of shaking a time of bringing down any humanistic building projects that are not founded upon Jesus Christ who is our rock and who is our cornerstone that's how, that's how you should read this passage history is This time of shaking, the time of bringing down any humanistic building projects, think Tower of Babel, right? That are not founded on Jesus, who is our rock, who is our cornerstone. Listen to Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Shaking. Disorientation. The reason, the reason that the kingdom of God is unshakable and thus the rest of the created order is susceptible to shaking is because Jesus Christ is that type of foundation. Men will erect humanist edifice after human humanist edifice, ungodly state after ungodly state, and Christ alone is the rock that breaks them down to nothing. Because we have not come to Sinai, but Mount Zion, the same Mount Zion that Isaiah speaks of, incidentally, where all the nations stream there to learn about the law of God, this city of Christ, this new Jerusalem, because we have come here, we must begin to see ourselves as building on something, someone reliable. This is why we can talk about reconstructing society and the law, word of God. We serve King Jesus, and our King has a law, and he has commanded us to disciple the nations, and part of the discipling process is teaching it to them. We. <laughs> We need the civil magistrates in Fauquier County to knock on our door and say, what do we do? Amen. And they're never going to know that we exist if we just hide and camp out. We, we are called to take on all institutions that are not build, built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And this is why we can say what we say about the unjust nature of the prison system. The welfare state, name your issue, the immorality of the public school system, the atrocity of abortion on demand, all of it is built on something other than Jesus. And because of it, it must be torn down. It must be deconstructed. It must be brought low. And this is why Christian reconstruction is so important. We have church after church simply unable, most of them unwilling, but unable, incapable, of addressing these issues because they don't know what it means to build on the rock of Jesus Christ. They think that it's merely this pietistic metaphor that you slap on a picture and hang it on the wall. It's more than this. It means something. We serve a king, and this king desires to rule all of human history. He alone is this unshakable foundation. He alone can withstand earthquakes and floods, wars and pestilence. He alone provides stability to peoples and institutions and nations and cultures. Christ alone. And that has... That's who you have come to, church. You have come to Jesus Christ. You have come to his city, and as ambassadors of his kingdom rule, we now have the responsibility of living within its jurisdiction and serving God as living sacrifices, and we must do all of that knowing one important thing, the very last verse of this chapter. Our God is a consuming fire. History itself itself cannot be divorced from the reality that God is a consuming fire. Whether it is fire on the altar in the tabernacle, fire on the top of Mount Sinai, fire in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, fire from heaven um, when the prophets of Baal were routed by Elijah, or fire that pours out on the earth as God gives men over to their lusts, our God is in all of it. And we cannot escape this purging fire. For Christians, this consuming fire of God, it burns away the dross and it purifies us as his people. Now for the unbeliever though, fire consumes them for all eternity. Which means that we must insist on building everything on Christ, the unshakable one. It's his unshakable kingdom. We must build our lives on him, our families on him, our churches on him, and we must build our society on him. We must do it. Everything else will falter under the weight of this consuming fire. So cross and crown, know that you have come to Christ. Know that you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem where your citizenship resides. Know that what you have is unshakable, unconquerable, and unchanging. So trust it. Believe it and build on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the truth of your word will sanctify us, challenge us, and move us towards obedience. We know, um, we know that your word tells us that you gave us your spirit so that, so that you would cause us to walk in obedience to you. And we readily acknowledge that oftentimes um, we are stiff-necked and stubborn and we need your prodding to get moving. So like a stubborn mule, so are we without your energizing Holy Spirit. So help us, Father, to build on your Son, the cornerstone who the builders rejected. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.